Jared for Leonard. What a great job he's doing. Quick funny story about Leonard. Uh, I've been doing, working with him at Pitbull for over 10 years now. And about five years ago, I get a call from Leonard and he goes, I got a problem. I got to forward you a letter I received. He got a letter from Pitbull the singer, a cease and desist letter telling him to stop using the name Pitbull. So we have a full service litigation department offices in New York and New Jersey. And I said, Leonard, let us take a look at it. Long story short, Leonard's been the Pitbull longer than Pitbull's been the Pitbull. So he is protected under the common law copyright, and that is the true Pitbull. So give him a hand. What's that? We sent it back. So, so then you have these type of agreements that you could both, co- they're called coexisting agreements, so you could all live together. But uh, that is the true Pitbull. Yes, that was the answer. We, we kind of sent back, go, take a look at this, guys, and let us know if you want to talk anymore. Never heard again. So uh, it's great to be here in Henderson is where we're located. And, and I say that specifically because some of, some of us believe we're in Las Vegas, but I know we're not. So I always, it's always a running joke with Leonard and I going, he says we're having our, our next show in Las Vegas, and I say it's Henderson. Let's be honest about that. But it, it's, it's great to be out of here, out of the New York, New Jersey area, at least for a little bit. Um, so I've been doing Pitbull for 10 years, and let me tell you why I continue to do it. Uh, I learn as much as I teach when I come here. The conversations I have with the group that we've put together that show up here teach me more about what's going on in the, the, the hard money, private lending market nationwide than I could learn sitting behind my desk or just reading. So last night I had an awesome dinner with uh, two clients, uh, Jeff Tesh from RCN, who does a, a great job down there, and where's Lance? Is Lance here? Lance from Anchor Home. We went out. Lance is big on the West Coast huge private lender, and gave me so much information, which I'm going to convey to everybody, on where the market is. Because ultimately, uh, we're all really smart in a good market. And (laughs) in a good market, everybody's smart. But when a market turns, then we see how smart we really are. And that's the, the type of thing we have to be cautious about and think about. So as Leonard said, I come here with a, uh, in a bunch of different capacities. I, I am a, an attorney with a law firm. I have focused in the private lending area by choice. Uh, I enjoy it. I'm a deal guy to my core. I love doing deal work. Um, secondly, I am a private lender. In my position, I see deals day in, day out. Some of them I lend against with my group. Some of them I give out to my clients. But there's a lot of uh, transactional work being generated with what I do. And the third, and it's not third in any reason, least important, I am a a sitting mayor in New Jersey. There are 500 of us in New Jersey, and if you live in New Jersey, you know mayors run their area and their jurisdictions. And I do get a lot of satisfaction out of it because my late father served as mayor of my hometown. Uh, He passed around 10 years ago, so it's kind of like honoring him. So I I really do enjoy it. And New Jersey politics makes hard money lending look like it's a B-League sport. Only second to Chicago politics, but New Jersey, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So uh, we have a lot to discuss today um, on, on what's going on in the market and where we're at. First and foremost, I want to talk a little bit about some of the players you hear. Uh, 
you have securitization has now stepped into the hard money lending market. And that's a big deal for those of you who don't know. What securitization is, is they're taking all these mortgages and selling them as a security. And that's lowering the price of capital that lenders could get today, which means lenders could lend out to borrowers at cheaper prices. So the fact that the securitization market has now stepped in to the fix and flip business is great for this, great for our industry. So those cheaper money is on its way. You have, uh, where's Eric? Stand up. Eric Abramowitz, Rock Capital. Who lends here? Raise your hand. That's a guy you got to talk to. He, ha- he could lever you. You can borrow money from him and lend it out at more money. That's a guy you have to talk to. Where, where's uh, Bofi? Here? Travis? He's out in the hall. He loses out. He's another guy. If you're a lender or if you're thinking of getting into the business, talk to Eric before you leave. He will give you his parameters, and it's where lenders can get their money. Because money is not infinite. Your widget when you're a lender is lending money. You have to raise money. And we're going to go into that in a second. These guys could provide leverage and make you bigger than you, not, you are not otherwise. All right. How I see the world. There's two sides of the private lending business. You have your hard lending originator side. Okay? You see RCN Capital advertising. You see Lending Home advertising. They're origination machines. They go out into the public and they get mortgages to close. They do their underwriting. They do their advertising. They do their promotions. They do everything to bring deals in. That's one side of the equation. The next side is the money-raising side. Because just because you're an originator doesn't mean you have money or investors to lend. Some of the originators partner with hedge funds. Some of the originators borrow from rock capital. Some of the originators form funds, like Leonard was discussing this morning, a 506 fund to raise money from investors. You must be good at both sides of the equation to be successful. You need to have an origination machine to have the deals to sell them to your investors. Now, Leonard mentioned, what's the best selling technique? For me, it's access to deals that nobody else can get. It's giving your investors a low-digit, low-mid-teen return because I have access to these deals that they can't get in the stock market or otherwise. That is the best selling point. To get that, you need to have an origination machine and show that you're capable of doing the proper underwriting. All right, so what's going on in the market today? And I have two slides for this. First, fact, we have recovered from the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Doing this show for 10 years, it was fun in the beginning, and then we went into the workouts after the crash in 2007, and it stunk. This room was empty. It was like me talking to Leonard. And everything was about servicing and working out, and I'm going to talk about that point in a second because it's really important. Two different types of people have now entered our industry. The technology people 
who know how to generate leads more quickly and use the internet and process loans more quickly, and the real estate people, the people who know how to underwrite to look at the downside of a transaction and figure out how they're going to get out of a deal. In an upticking market, when everybody's making money, both could succeed. When stuff turns around, like it did in 2007, only the real estate people survive. So I'll go through that. So you need both knowledge to be and maintain success in this business. A rising market, everybody's smart. When it turns is when things happen. Fact, there are many lenders or soon-to-be lenders active in 2016. Who reads the Bible? Scotsman's Guide. You guys get Scotsman's Guide? Look at it over the years. Really thick in 2003. Got really thick. 2007, paper thin. Paper thin. It's back. It's really thick again. It's a good barometer of where we are on the market. Get it, read it, see who the competition is. Values of real estate are back, especially in the high-end areas. You know what's hot? New York, surrounding boroughs, Miami, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, where we're not located. <laughs> hot, booming, prices are going up. The outer areas haven't boomed as much, but I was talking to Lance, I don't know if he's here last night, he's telling me, and I don't know anything about California, I said, what's hot in California, where are you lending? He goes, South Central. I go, South Central? I know that, I saw that movie, I went with my son, getting out of Compton, right? That's like the last place I'd invest, but he's telling me it's pushing up. Not dissimilar to what happened in Harlem, in New York, which I do know, 125th Street became the line, when Bill Clinton opened his office there. So you're watching the real estate move in these areas. We're in a hot market. So real estate has bounced back in a lot of areas. And competitions for loans is very high right now because lenders are cutting their costs in some cases. So let's, let's look at the warning signs in the market. LTVs, CTVs, costs, loans to value. We all know what that is? Okay, you go in, very simple. If this is a building, and somebody comes to me to borrow and it's worth 100 bucks, I'm gonna lend them 65 bucks in a first lien position. That's the basics of our business. $65 against a $100 value. What happens in an overheated market is a lender who knows in their heart they should be at 65% LTV says, borrower, I'll give you some more money, I'll go to 70. Or borrower, I'll go to 80. I remember Six years ago, I was here giving a speech and I saw an advertisement on TV that they promised 125% of the loan amount. On TV, advertise, we're gonna close. I mean, not only do you get the property, you get a wad of cash for your pocket. No construction, that's what happens. Watch the LTVs go up, listen to what the competition's doing. Hold true to your underwriting because if you don't, and when it turns, and it does turn, only the strong people, the real estate people, are going to survive, and you're going to be happy you're at a lower LTV. Pricing and rates and competition. We call, it's changed, okay? We call this compression. I'm told from everybody I talked to, compression is now over. The pricing, and I'll show you where it is nationwide, has now settled. I'm also told in the hottest of areas, there is still compression going on. I was told in California, there's a lender lending at eight and one. 
8%, one point at the closing. That's cheap. You're, you're crossing off of hard money and you're coming into something else. And I'll go through the pricing. But I'm told compression is done. The market was cleared out a little bit from some inexperienced people. So therefore, the competition is less. Defaults, not historically high right now. 8% or lower. So we're not seeing a huge tick up in defaults on loans made, which is good. It means the market is healthy. Credit providers, advance rates. Some, some people have pulled back on their advance rates because about three months ago, there was a blimp in the market. People got nervous. That's changed. They've come back and created new advance rates. The advance rate is whether you're going to get 65% on your loan, 75% on your loan from your credit provider, from your lender. And the stock market will always dictate what's people's feelings about our business. So if the stock market, the global economy, a President Trump makes people nervous, you're going to see a pullback in credit. A pullback in credit will change our pricing and the dynamics of our industry. I, Leonard talked about this. I'll be brief. The Jobs Act of 2000 in, in 2012, signed by President Obama, changed the way we could raise money in this country. Does everybody hear the concept of crowdfunding? There's a bunch of platforms that have developed, so I don't need to go in in detail. Basically, we have the ability to raise money over the internet if we follow the rules today. It's a concept followed in Europe, and there's a bunch of websites and platforms that have started to do it. I personally, no offense to anybody, believe that these type of funding sites without the real estate, they're technology driven. Without the real estate expertise, when defaults start happening, it's gonna get difficult. So they have to build up their real estate bases. But if you wanna raise money this way, you have the ability to do it. Crowdfunding. The biggest thing that the Jobs Act did in 2012 for your standard 506 Reg D offering is it now allows for something called general solicitation. Does anybody know what that is? Okay. The old rule said if you were going to raise money through a, through a private placement, you had to have a three-touch rule. Leonard had a four-touch rule, and I noticed he had a picture of a woman up there when he had that. I wouldn't have done that. That would have been politically incorrect. Three-touch rule, the old way. You can't go out and just ask. I can't come up to Sam Combe and go, Sam, how about you give me money for my fund? I have to verify that he's an accredited investor. I have to do a little bit of a dance with him. And then I could ask him. The Jobs Act changed that. There's a new fund, which Leonard and I have done together. I can now, if I do it properly, sit in this room and sell my fund to you. I could put all these people in a room and I could generally solicit. I could do it by emails. I could do it by TV. How many people from the East Coast? Remember uh, the Crazy Eddie commercials, anybody? Remember that, remember that lunatic on TV? Shop around and get the best prices you can find and then come through Crazy Eddie where the prices are insane. That was his, his pitch. You're going to see that in the next 10 years with people trying to raise money on TV because of this change in the rule. You haven't seen it yet, but you're going to. So that's a huge change that you could do it. Okay. So you're the manager of your fund. I'm going to explain this. Go back to the beginning. So remember this. You're in the money-raising side of your business, 
And everybody in this room who wants to start the fund, your role in that fund is you're the manager. So you could think about it the right way. You do a private placement, you're the manager. Two jobs for the manager. Number one, originate and fund private commercial transactions to get your investors a return. And have the servicing and real estate expertise to make something work that's a failed loan. A defaulted loan is not necessarily a bad thing. It's an opportunity to make money. You have to know what you're doing or hire professionals that know what they're doing. That's your first job as a manager. Your second job is to raise money. And if we're doing a Reg D fund or another state offering or a Reg A fund, you sell your expertise as the manager or your team. You put it all in the fund. Somebody will invest with you if they believe you could get them access to the deals they can't get otherwise and get a good return. So that's what you're selling as the manager. You must do both well to succeed. If you cannot originate deals, you cannot have a fund. If you have a fund and you don't get good deals, you can't give your investors the return. Some people partner with an originator and a fund to do it. That's like hedge funds funding originators in our business. It happens. You need to figure out a way to do both well, and you could do that through partnerships if you don't want to build your own infrastructure. Let's talk about the hard money lending business. You need the market value of the asset. As the lender, the originator, you determine the market value. Never take an appraisal from your borrower. Okay, because I'm going to give you one of the most important pieces of information today. All borrowers lie. Every single one of them. They can't help it. They're selling you and they're liars. Remember that. You cannot take an appraisal from them. If you take an appraisal from them and you base your loan on their appraisal, you're going to be lending at a much higher rate into the deal, then you want to. Then you're disclosing to your investors. Do your own analysis. Appraisal Nation does a lot of work with my clients. They're right over there. They lend it, they appraise nationwide. Go over and talk to them. They'll, they'll teach you about the appraisal process. Only lend at a percentage of the market value and hold true to those values. True commercial is 60 to 65% LTV in our country. The fix and flips are hot, are, are hot and much higher. Everybody knows what a fix and flip is? Five years ago, it didn't exist. We weren't even talking fix and flips. Now we're talking about it. That's where you buy the house, you change the kitchen, you change the landscaping, new bathroom, and then you sell it much higher. One-year paper. Those LTVs are higher than 60 or 65%. And the advance rates. There's more competition in that space. Lenders do not take insurable risk. Okay? Because you raised private money and you're not a bank doesn't mean you take risk that you shouldn't otherwise take. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about title insurance. You're getting title insurance properly reviewed by a capable professional on each deal. Anybody who tells you you don't need title insurance is risking their entire business for you by doing a loan. 
proper endorsements, securing your first lien position, everything you need to close that loan. Because in the end of the day, when you're closing a loan with a borrower, I always ask this, and Sam, you can't answer the question because you hear it all the time. Close a loan with a borrower. You give the borrower a million dollars. He gives you an IOU. Who has the better deal? Every time. Eh, he's got your money. And when, when are you allowed to breathe and be happy? When he pays you back. Until that point, every single one of you have lent the money, you're at risk, and he's got a better deal. We try to remove the risks that can hurt us. Title insurance removes one of those risks. It gives you a first lien on the property. Okay? That's what you need as a minimum. I close, I'm a nationwide closer for most of the lenders in this room. My office closes deals in every jurisdiction. Today, we're closing 15 deals across the country. Every single one of those lenders will have a title policy that puts them in a first lien position with a valid mortgage in their jurisdiction. Because once they get that, we know we're underwriting the downside. We know the worst case scenario. Hazard insurance. Properties burn. People slip. They get hurt. They fall. You need proper homeowner's insurance on the property and the lender named as an additional insured has to be done properly with the right coverage. For those of you who are thinking of skipping that step because the borrower is going to go somewhere else, let them go. You don't need that deal. Environmental. Not as much in the fix and flip space because usually the only environmental risk are two. Underground storage tanks and lead paint, usually the ha or asbestos. Usually the house is being redone, so they're gonna remove everything anyway, and then they're gonna, they're gonna redo it. So the asbestos and the lead paint isn't as good. The underground storage tank could screw you. You could do a tank sweep, very inexpensive. Look in the history, especially in New Jersey, tri-state area. Some lenders don't do that. On a commercial piece of real estate, you get something called a phase one. If you get a phase one under our federal Superfund statutes, you have something, you have protection within six months of the closing. The federal government says, you know what? You did your due diligence lender. I'm not going to hold you responsible for the contaminated site that you lent against. If you don't, they will hold you responsible. Commercial real estate. So we take those things we could otherwise insure off the table. Lenders take one, two risks, and we try to minimize them. Market risk. You think it's worth a million bucks, but it's really worth 600? You take that risk. Nobody's going to insure you against that risk. That's, that's the first risk that you have to eat and explain to your investors where the originator comes. There's no, nothing, nothing anybody could do. And borrowers defrauding you. Okay? Fraud. You take that risk if you're dealing with a bad borrower. I've dealt with bad borrowers before. True story. Lent four million bucks on a the last lot in Singer Island in Florida. Does everybody know Singer? Really nice place. Worked the deal, wired to the closing, speaking to the guy every day. Next day, his phone was turned off. Closed the deal, wired four million. You know what? He sold me the property. We ended up getting out for six million four. Had to go through foreclosure. The guy went to Europe. But we did our underwriting right. We were right on the market. He had no intention of ever repaying us the money. He sold it to us, but we covered ourselves. 
Not a good conversation to have with your investors, though, after the fact, when they're not getting their monthly payments because the borrower disappeared. Everybody was made whole and happy because we did our underwriting properly and we foreclosed on the property. So a default scenario is not necessarily a bad thing if you're a real estate guy and you know what you're doing. Do full underwriting and verify. Go to your properties. Be a detective when you're lending. Don't just trust what the borrower is saying because all bar, come on, all of them. All borrowers lie. True, true. We did a shopping center deal out here in Nevada. I got a rent roll. I got tax returns. And I got canceled checks. So we sent somebody out to Nevada, like we always do on the commercial deals, to take a look at the property. The property was dark, vacant. I'm on the phone with the guy we put on the ground, and I'm asking, are you sure in the right place? He's like, John, I'm staring at an empty Blockbuster store. (laughs) Complete fraud. Never would have, everything checked out. Canceled checks, confirmation on balance sheets, everything. You got to be careful. All right, let's talk about, this is a new slide, servicing loans. This is where the real estate side comes in. You have a default. You have a choice. You could foreclose. Guys, foreclosure in a lien theory state is a litigation. You could have counterclaims against you, most of which should not be true if you do the right thing. But there's a body of law that protects borrowers in our country. It is a litigation. It is costly. It stinks. I would avoid foreclosure if possible, and I'll explain how. Borrowers could put themselves into bankruptcy. You could lend against a bankruptcy remote entity on a commercial loan. Nobody in the fix and flip space is doing that today. Does everybody know what a bankruptcy remote entity is? Tell you what it is. You, you have your borrower form a new limited liability company or corporation, and you put your guy on their board and change their governing rules that say in order to go into bankruptcy, everybody on the board has to vote yes. And your guys, one job in life is to vote no when it comes to bankruptcy. No, bankruptcy, no, that's it. That's his one job. It's called a bankruptcy remote entity. It's recognized in corporate and real estate transactional work. And it's something that's very, very important if you get to the higher end commercial loans. It's not, it becomes too costly on the lower loan. So people don't do it. So you have to deal with bankruptcy. Power of sale provisions in the states that allow it. If you have the power of sale provisions and a default happens, you could get to the property more quickly. It's important because as my clients say, time is money. If you're sitting there waiting to get to your property and it takes too much time, it's costing them money. So we have to get them there as quickly as possible. What I have done is I've put together a forbearance package. So if the borrower's default, I don't immediately go to foreclosure, which is a litigation. I sit with the borrower and I talk to them, mostly by phone. How much more time do you need? Well, I know I'm going to pay you back in three months. Three months, I'm definitely going to pay you back. Okay, we're going to give you four months. And we're going to defer the interest over the four months, but... You're going to sign a confession of judgment and a deed in lieu of foreclosure. So on the last day after the fourth month, if you don't do what you said you were going to do, I'm going to become the owner of the property. Borrowers sometimes think that's fair. 
It's a quicker way to get to the property in most jurisdictions. It's important to do it. You also, in these forbearance documents, bring the borrower closer. There's a whole bunch of self-serving statements that the lender has the borrower sign off on. The lender's the greatest thing since sliced bread, never did anything wrong, advanced the money when he was supposed to, I love this lender. Very powerful thing if you ever have to go to court. Okay? Because borrowers try to come up with ways to say the lender did wrong, that's why they shouldn't be able to foreclose. So that's what we end up doing, waves counterclaims. Better way to do it. Get a real estate guy on your foreclosures to handle it when workouts do come. All right, here's the pricing in our country today. I feel it's fairly current right now, so you guys can see what people are charging. East Coast, New York, and Florida, 12% interest is the standard. People are pushing down on it. Maybe they go to 11, maybe they go to the 10. 12% interest, which is 1% per month, anywhere between two and five points paid at the closing. Okay, that's about the market there. West Coast, 9 to 10% interest, one to four points at the closing. Okay, by the way, the pricing is also affected by the type of real estate. Recently, I've been doing a bunch of gas station deals, and there's a perceived higher environmental risk with gas station deals, you could charge more in that case. So you're allowed to do it. The fix and flips are relatively quick and easy, so that's what, where you're having the compression in the market. Southeastern United States, 9 and 10%, 1 to 4. Texas is hot as a pistol right now. Texas is hot, California's hot, you're seeing compression there. Midwestern U.S., I have clients in Ohio still charging 14% and 5 points. And they're getting it every day. And I'm, you know, I'm like, God bless you. God bless, you're getting it. So it's a very regional stuff, but that's a good indicator of where the markets are from my experience right now. Let's say you go in and you become a lender, guys. Your loan administration process, how you bring the borrower in, how you get him to sign with you is very, very important. I helped design this process for a lot of lenders. And the key is for the lenders Spend as little as money possible until you know you have a deal. A lot of people come to this business and they get excited. They get some deals. They start putting resources and money only to realize all borrowers lie and they don't have the deal. Not only do borrowers lie about value, they lie when they say they're not talking to another lender. Of course they are. So I would not spend a lot of money until two things happen. As a lender, you have a signed commitment with some kind of financial commitment from the borrower so he feels or she feels the pain if she goes elsewhere. That's when you could move forward. Why don't hard money loans close? What's the biggest reason? You know this. That's it. Borrowers lie Sam Cohn, expert in the area. Lo these loans, 90% of them don't close because borrowers are lying about the value. The only way you to confirm the value is to go get your own, your own appraisal, appraisal, you're not taking their appraiser, right? Your own appraisal, because we know they all lie, and you're gonna go out and then you could give a loan offer and confirm the number. By the way, borrowers always pay for the appraisals. You could take a credit card, you could set it up, you could give them chart, even if the money that they're paying you up front is to pay for their own appraisal, at least you'll not be spending money and you'll get a realistic picture of the property on what it's worth. 
So the borrowers pay for the appraisal, then you'll have your value, then you can make your offer, then you could go to a closing. It is not easy to close a hard money loan. It is hard. It is work. And you have to put a process in place which protects you financially while you move forward and move down the line. Very important. State foreclosure laws. We talked about this a, li a little. You have judicial foreclosures, non-judicial, UCCs, and deed in lieu's. I constantly get this question. I'm sure somebody has it here. And by the way, if you guys have a question on anything I'm talking, yell it out. I'd rather address it now. Okay? You get it. I should have told you in the beginning. God bless you. Deed and lose. You guys know what it is? I get a question all the time. How come we can't get a deed in lieu when we close the loan? Right? Go, go get rid of that forbearance process and I avoid judicial foreclosure and just own the property when they don't pay me back on day one. The reason is the courts frown upon that. They think you're a predatory lender and you never wanted to actually be a lender. You were trying to take the property from the borrower. There was, after 2007, there was a whole bunch of case law out there that actually undid secured mortgages because they contemplated deed and lose. My advice, take it for what it's worth, no deed and lose at the loan closing. You could do it at the forbearance after they've defaulted. They've given you a reason for it. Okay, underwriting 101. And I'll tell you about a call I just got for a deal, which I went to underwriting 101. Two questions I asked my borrowers. Number one, how are you going to pay me back? Great, love the deal. How are you going to pay me back? Tell me how you're going to do it. If they have no clue, they don't get my money, they don't get my investor's money, they don't get a loan. How are you going to do it? You're going to sell out your property in a year? You're going to fix and flip it? You're going to refinance with who? How's your credit? Who's going to take me out? If your borrowers don't have a good exit strategy, do not close the loan with them. Second, how much skin does the borrower have in the game? Real skin. How much equity have they put up? I don't want to know what they paid their lawyers or their engineers or their brokers on closing on acquiring. I want to know hard costs into the property. That's your real exposure. Okay, so you need to look at that. That's important. Those two questions. I got a call from a colleague in New York from a guy who apparently was wealthy, went through a, a multi-million dollar divorce. He has a property that's vacant and clear. They sent me an appraisal. I think it's worth $1.2 He wants to borrow $85,000 to pay a tax lien. He needs to close by Tuesday. Okay. All right, I'm interested in the loan-to-value works, right? If it's really worth one, two, eighty-five thousand, so I asked the guy on the phone, "Well, how's he going to pay me back?" Dead silence. Doesn't have a clue. Guy's not closing the loan. I don't care how low the LTV is. If anybody wants the deal, I'll give it to you. It's available. If you don't know how you're going to pay me back, I'm not giving you money because you know why? He's getting a better deal at the closing. He's going to walk away with $85,000 and I'm going to buy a lawsuit. And I don't want to own his property. That's not what I'm in the business to do. Due diligence. Do your due diligence on every deal. The biggest shops, the RCNs, the lending homes, the anchors, they do their due diligence super fast. That's how you have to do. You have to perfect a streamlined system. Use your outside professionals to help you. But do it all. Title, survey, environmental, 
underwriting plus supporting documentation. Here's some false statements. I love saying these. Since I'm paying points, there is no due diligence needed on this loan. Hear it all the time. I'm paying points. What do you mean you need to get title? Lenders don't take otherwise insurable risk. We take market risk. That's all we take. This was supposed to be a no-document loan. I've been practicing law over 20 years. I don't even know what a no-document loan is. I mean, the best thing I can think of is it's a gift, right? No-document loan is like what I take from my, you know, family. It's called a gift. Who doesn't document a loan? Other hard money lenders do not require as much documentation. Guess what? Go to them. Because I'm going to be around for a long time lending. Because the market turns. I don't care. Go. I don't care how good the deal is. The power of no. Honesty with your lender. You guys as lenders need to be comfortable saying, no, this does not work for me without offending your brokers and your borrowers. The end of the day, they're get yes. It's correct. It's correct. Did everybody hear what Sam said? Okay. The power of no is very it, it is very strong. Use it. Use it often. There are a ton of deals out there. If your borrower is struggling with you with getting you title insurance or giving you a legal opinion or not recognizing that you they can't have a second lien on the property. No, that doesn't work for me. Move on. That's what you could do as a lender. You will get better deals and you will stay in business. Hire competent professionals. Don't try to save a dollar and lose a fortune. I always have price pressure on my business. I close for a lot of high volume lenders nationwide. They want to know why I'm not charging $800 a closing like the guy down the street. The guy down the street does not do what I do. Okay, we are a completely different set of professionals in due diligence. We will help protect your business for when things turn. That's what you have to recognize. If you want to go to the lowest cost service provider on appraisals, on engineering, on title, on lawyering, you're maybe making a little more in your pocket on the closing, but you're putting your business at risk. So that's something that I feel strongly about. Today, we're looking at higher underwriting standards. Since 2007, each loan has to paper out by itself. Prior to 2007, I had bankers tell me, eh, if 90% of the loans we did pay back, we'll eat the other 10%, we'll be good. So let's just push it through. Let's get it done. Not the case anymore. Back to traditional underwriting. Each loan has to paper out by itself and make sense or it should not get done today. If you're dealing with a lender... Make sure he has a track record of closing loans. There are a lot of people in this business, this end of the business, that still take upfront fees and don't close. So if you're a broker, if you're a borrower, if you're a lender trying to partner, make sure you're dealing with a real lender that closes. Usury. Do we know what usury is? Oh, this is the best. These are, yes, you know what it is. Shoot. Yep. But how do you get around the homestead exemption in places like Florida and Texas where it's 100% so that you can foreclose or, or get your money back out well, of Well, these, these aren't residential loans. I'm talking, and this is something to understand, 
These are commercial loans. Okay. Every loan I'm talking about up here, even the fix and flips. So here's the rule, and I'll hit it on a slide in a minute. My advice, and my clients follow it, only lend to entities on non-owner occupied real estate. That's it. You avoid a whole body of, of civil laws put into place to protect the consumer borrower. So we get rid of those. So that's how we do it. Loans to entities on non-owner occupied real estate. So you just don't deal in that area? I do not deal. Well, I do, but not in this seminar. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Let's talk usury. You know what usury is? State laws set up to saying to protect mostly the consumer borrowers. You need to be careful because in a lot of places it doesn't matter. For instance, in New York, civil usury, loans above 250000 are exempt from the 16% cap. New York has a criminal usury statute. True, true story, I'll tell you a story I just did in New York, uh, a deal I did in New York, busted deal. I and my group lent a company $775,000 secured by a building in Huntington, New York. The guarantor was out of her mind. She stopped paying me in a year. She was the guarantor, not the borrower, because I only lent to entities. And for a full year, I was speaking to her about repaying me. She had every excuse in the world. She had a bad back. She had a headache. I'm taking her inheritance. I mean, it was, it was a bad borrower. But we did our underwriting properly. We took a first lien on this property in Huntington, New York. I got the property appraised. It appraised at $2 million. I was in for $775, and I had it value at two. Long story short, I sold the note to somebody for $1.2 million. Okay, good deal. Default, paid my investors a lot of money, made a lot of money on the deal. It was a nice deal for me. We had accrued interest above the 25%. I'm admitted in New York. I went to look at the look at the statutes. We were okay in the civil usually case, but we bumped up against the 25% criminal usually statute. It is, and let me get it right, a class D felony in New York, a class D felony under the criminal code of New York, if you go above 25% the first time you do it, it moves up and becomes worse the second time. So how many people out there know that when you're charging in New York, if you cross a 25% threshold, you are a criminal? Got to know your laws in every jurisdiction. So what's the remedy? If you violate the civil, civil usury code in New York... You get no interest or principal recovered. The judge wipes out the loan completely. That's a harsh penalty. And by the way, think about having that conversation with your investors. I got bad news. I thought we were making 40%, but we have nothing. You're not getting your principal back. Same thing in Florida. Criminal usually 25%. The remedy is civil interest is void. You can recover the principal. They're a little kinder, but... The lender has to pay back the borrower two times the usurious rate. Be careful. So how do you get around the usury stuff? Well, this is the calculation. What goes into a usury calculation? Well, the interest rate paid, the default interest, the points, the late fees, the equity interest. All this stuff goes to the calculation. It's not just the standard. So you got to know how you're doing. So here's some tips on how to avoid the usury risk. 
In some jurisdictions, we have 50 states, obviously, you could get a usury endorsement on your title policy. The title company, big insurance company, is going to insure you that your loan's not usurious. Okay? If you could get it, get it. Number two, legal opinions, which I'm going to discuss. For my commercial deals and for all my private lenders over a certain dollar threshold, I get a legal opinion on every closing from the borrower's attorney that tells me a host of things, one of which my loan's not usurious. So I have a licensed practitioner in the state who puts his license on the line that tells me I'm not going to jail if I make that loan. That's a good thing. Number three, good professionals. Hire people that realize it usually exists and you gotta be comfortable with it. There's a couple different ways around this if anybody wants to talk offline. I don't wanna dwell on it Just too much. Just a quick question. Is it APR, right? What is that? That's APR, annual percentage rate per yes, year? Yes, that is correct, it's annual. Okay. Yes. I have another question, going back to what you said to lend only to an entity, not an owner's occupied. I didn't hear a word you said, say it again. I have a question about lending to uh, owner's occupied, yes. non-owner's occupied. Two weeks ago I had a borrower call me that um, he has a home that's free and clear, he bought it in January for 820000 He wants to put it into an entity, it's in his personal name, he wants to transfer it to an entity, and I should lend him 450000 against it. But I know that he lives there. I passed on the deal. What's your thoughts on that? Good move to pass on the deal. If he lives there for more than 14 days a year, you are triggering the HUD requirements and the TILA requirements, even, even it's if it's entity. in an entity. Okay? Doesn't, if they live there, it's owner-occupied. So you can't, you, you stay away from it. And how do you detect fraud if a guy tells you, I don't live there, and he does live there? And By the way, entity. let me see your license. Let me see where you live. Show me your tax bill. Has a different, has a different address. Has everything. You do run some risk. It is not a defense. It's something that, remember, how does this come about? He claims when you go to foreclose that this guy shouldn't have made the loan to me. He didn't comply with HUD and the federal rules. Therefore, he can't get the benefit of foreclosing on me. And you go back in defense and go, you committed fraud. That's what you do. By the way, all your loan applications which is part of that loan process, should have a clear statement in it that says it's non-owner-occupied, I'm not living there, and they sign that. That's the first step in holding the borrower responsible for fraud. Thank you. Okay, and, and it's a good defense. It works. Okay, 2007, world crashed. We all lost money. We, were not, we realized we're not as smart as we were, right? Congress passed the SAFE Act. Every state has to comply with the SAFE Act. This goes to licensing requirements. To be a private lender in this country, you need to comply with the state law requirements, most of which are different, uh, dictated by the SAFE Act. We have done analyses in each state. Each state is different. So if you engaged us to do the review, we tell you where you can lend and where you have to get licensed. Remember, in general, you don't need a license if you're lending to an entity on non-owner-occupied property. In general. There is definitely states that have exemptions to it. Which states? California. Do you need a license? I, I got to figure out. Len, you know, on a side note, Lender has all this. Lenny takes my stuff and puts it in his thing. He gets my, my presentation before, and then he, he makes it with, like, graphics, so it's even better. So what I want to do is cover the yes, the no, and the maybe, so I could, I don't even know how to do that. So work with me here. Do you need a license in California? Yes, no doubt about it. Do you need one in New Jersey? Do you need one in Florida? 
Maybe, good answer. By the way, two things going on in Florida. My view, you absolutely need a license in Florida to do private lending. I have confirmed with the Florida Office of Compliance, they are not enforcing that rule. So nobody gets licensed in Florida. Now, how does that change? I run a small government, okay? New governor comes in and goes, we need money. How are we going to do that? We're going to start doing fines and penalties for all those unlicensed lenders in our state. Some of my clients have chosen not to get licensed. Some have. So you got to do a state-by-state -state analysis. This is the general rule on licensing. Is the intent of the loan, that should say loan, not land, for personal, family, or household use? Is the person borrowing from you going to use it for personal, family, or household use? Under the federal rules, you get around it when you're lending to an entity. Once you take the individual out, you meet that threshold. The owner-occupied rule is another level of analysis. Uh, yes. What if the, uh, uh, what if the uh, law says uh, primarily for personal, household, or family use? Uh, and, uh, and so uh, uh, the borrower wants to borrow uh, $300,000. $200,000 is going to uh, open a restaurant, and $100,000 is to help them with some debts. Uh, does the, uh, does, does the fact- Ent Entity or individual? Pardon? Entity or individual, well, I, I would write the paper, a loan to an entity, and only write the commercial use of the loan. Okay? That's the way I would write it. I wouldn't put in the personal element, I wouldn't underwrite that. It makes me nervous. I don't know what primarily means. Yes, and understand how it's gonna come up. I'm gonna be arguing for you in front of a judge. You're trying to take this guy's house, which he probably lives in, if that's what he's doing. Right. And he's going, Your Honor, I told him I was using it for my debts and he made the loan anyway. Not a good position for you to be in. Well, what if we, I mean, uh, well, we've done this before. We've, we've, uh, we've taken a, a, a notarized statement from the borrower saying, this is what we, we this is what we're using to, uh, using, and we also uh, find some document. We also ask for some documentation to to uh, to, to to show. Very that. helpful. You should get all of that in your closing package at closing. You need to verify these are commercial loans on non-owner occupied property. There should be a statement that way. That's not dispositive, though. What you can't do is take the stuff with a wink, knowing I know you're living there and you're using this for your personal use. Because when does this come up again? When you're trying to foreclose on the borrower and he's gonna be arguing it, saying, you made me sign those documents to get the loan. You knew I lived there, I told you. That's not a place you wanna be in. You don't need to be in that place. There are millions of deals to do in this country. Avoid them. So you, you say primarily really doesn't, doesn't help you at all? No, I wouldn't do the deal. I personally wouldn't lend against it, and I'd advise my clients to lend against it. Thank you. Okay. Legal opinions and title. We talked about it a little, okay? Legal opinions. Get them at closing. I've had to convince my borrowers, my, my lenders, to get them. Because they're true, they're acceptable on pure commercial deals. The fix and flips are a hybrid, right? Most of the people think they're more like residential deals and commercial deals. 
our argument, our existence, why nothing applies to them, why usury doesn't apply, why licensing doesn't apply, is because they're true commercial deals. Get a legal opinion. A lot of my larger clients pick a threshold. One of them says 200,000 and above, I'm getting a legal opinion. 200,000 and below, they're not. That's their risk. Legal opinions cover a lot of stuff. A lot. Did the, was the borrower formed properly? Did they have proper authorization? Do the loan documents work in the state where it's located? A ton of stuff. I have a three-page opinion. The borrower's attorney signed them. That's what they have to do. Title covers you for fraud. It's an insurance policy. By the way, it's an insurance policy that's negotiated. How many times I get a title company located in Texas that goes, Mr. Hornick, we're not giving you that endorsement. And my response is, you're giving me that endorsement or we're not closing with you. We will go to the next title company, which is right down the street. You're not telling me what you're endorsing. You're an insurance company. You take risk. I don't take risk. I pay for you to take the risk. That's what we tell them to do. You have to have professionals that push back and get you what you need. And the only time this is going to matter is when the crap hits the fan and the loan goes into default. And you'll be happy to have the proper endorsements. Think about it as saving your business. Think about the conversation you'll need to have with your investors if you don't have it. The new TILA RESPA integrated disclosure rules, Reg X and Reg Z, long story short, not applicable to the fix and flip business if you're lending to commercial entities on non-owner occupied property. If you deviate it, if you start discussing like the gentleman did about the intent of the loan, is it primary or not, these things may get triggered. If it gets triggered, it is unworkable in this business. Those rules are unworkable in the fix and flip business as it is today. So, good thing is, not applicable as of today. How to look at deals, skin in the game. We know what that, this is kind of like a, a fast summary and then we'll move on. Skin in the game. We know what that means, right? Borrower has to have skin in the game, real skin. What's my exit strategy? Mr. Borrower, how are you going to pay me back? Don't chase deals. Move on. There are millions of you to do. Come up with your under, underwriting criteria and hold true to those criteria. Do not move with the market. There's no reason to. The power of no. Feel empowered. Say no. Say it. Net. No. Come on. Say it. No. That doesn't work for me. I'm not giving you my money unless you do X, Y, and Z. The power of no. Future improvements do not mean present value. You know, Mr. Hornick, I know that my property's worth a lot more than the appraisal because I heard Walmart is coming down the street. I heard the government is opening a new highway. I run a small government. That could stop in a second. That is not, when that road is cut, when I do the ribbon cutting on that road, that's the only time I'll guarantee it's going to open. <laughs> Prior to that, anything could happen. You can't. Real improvements mean it. I have thousands of dollars in this deal. Remember the movie, Show Me the Money? Show me the money. Show me your checks. Show me where it went. Show me the money that went into the deal. Show me your skin in the game. Trust but verify. This is another slide I have to change. That's Ronald Reagan, right? Trust but verify. Don't trust. Don't trust the borrowers. You gotta, I got to change that one. Can we lend in the state the real estate is located? That's a licensing question. So deals getting done today. You have regional lenders, 
Third-party hard money is big. That's why we're all here. You have guys who are just getting into the business, right? They don't have a fund yet. They're not ready for a fund. We can carve up a note for different investors. So let's say you have a million-dollar deal. You have 10 guys that want to do 100000 We could carve up a note in a, in a participation co-lender scenario so you could close the deal. And by the way, a million dollars is a lot of money. You could do $100,000 deals. You could do two, two co-lenders for 50 grand each. It's a way to start and get involved in the business. A lot of people start that way because they're not ready for a fund yet. It's the mortgage fund we're talking about today and the franchising lender, the corresponding thing hasn't really been around in a while. I should probably remove it from the chart. All right. Wait. Pick a purpose when you start your fund. What you're selling is an expertise, okay? If you are the fix and flip genius of Southwest Texas, that's what you put in your fund because that's what your investors are going to read and understand. You can't say, I'm going to do nuclear power plants, casinos, and anything else that comes across my desk because investors know you're not an expert in everything. Pick a focus. Smartest guy I know, somebody I respect very much said, you know how you get rich? You do the same thing over and over and over again. You don't try to do a thousand things. Find out the one thing you're best at and bang away at it over and over and over and over again until you become rich. That's what you do in this fund. Pick something. One-off residentials, pools, distressed REO and notes. That's big out there. Sell leasebacks. Whatever your niche is, is what you're selling in your fund to raise money. Let's talk about the money-raising business. How do you raise money from somebody? One, you should have some skin in the game yourself. Okay? Biggest thing for some people, how much are you in for? Somebody, anybody calls me to invest in something. My first question is, what are you in for? Says a lot. If they tell you I'm in for sweat equity, goodbye. Oh, that's great. I'm sorry. I'm tied up right now. Sweat equity is not exposure to the deal. Okay? How much cash out of your pocket? You know why? Because I want to know you're worrying about that deal as much as I am day in and day out. I want to know that you're worried your kids can't go to sleepaway camp if that investment doesn't work out. You need real exposure when you're raising money from somebody. I tell everybody who does a fund with me, you got to put money in or have some kind of exposure. Build a track record. You don't have to just start with a fund. If you have done 20 deals that have made money, that's your track record. Of course, past performance doesn't mean anything for future returns. We put that in too. But you show them the type of deals you are. You, you show them what you have. Okay? That's important. That's how you raise the money. Private placement memorandum. Leonard went over this. Okay? This is an offering document we put together for you. It has one purpose. Okay? It is to avoid your investor ever saying this. If I knew... That's what they were going to do with my money. I never would have invested. It's the one purpose of the offering circular. It discloses everything that could go wrong and what you're going to do with their money. So the investor can never claim, I didn't know they were going to do that. That's bad for you as a fund manager. So we make these thick documents. We disclose all possible risks. And when the investor calls up or calls the authorities and says, and, and, and by the way, this only happens when a deal goes bad, right? When they're getting their money, nobody cares. 
This is when they're not getting their money. And when they call somebody and say, I didn't know they were going to do that, I like to go, well, look on page 14, because I told you that environmental litigation was a risk. Or I told you the borrower could put himself into bankruptcy on page 17. Then they don't have a defense. So that's what the big picture of the PPM is. Only deal with accredited investors. The definition's up there. It's a bright line rule, okay? The law says once you're dealing with a, an accredited investor, they lose a bunch of protections. So who's an accredited investor? Net worth over a million dollars, income over $200,000, 300,000 joint for the three most recent years, gonna make the same again next year? That's who you deal with, accredited investors. All my funds I set up only for my clients to raise money from accredited investors. There is a lesser standard that's permitted. The law permits 35 sophisticated investors to invest in your fund. And a couple times a year, I get a, a question from somebody, I really want to raise money. They're nervous. They don't think they could raise the money. So I, I need to be able to dip into the sophisticated investor definition. Here's the definition, guys. This is the definition of sophisticated investor. It means an investor who is either personally or with the help of an independent investment advisor able to make an intelligent decision whether or not to invest in the offering. The specific definition is he has such knowledge and experience in financial and business matters that he is capable of evaluating the merits and risks of the prospective investment. I have no idea what that means. I don't. And if I don't know what it means, I can't prove it to a judge or somebody from the SEC. Stay away from it. You're going to be claiming he has enough knowledge and he's going to be claiming I have no clue? That's a bad deal for you. Only deal with accredited investors. Component parts of the PPM, again, it's to disclose everything to the investors so they know what's going on. Let's talk quickly about general solicitation. I, I actually did this already, so we did it. The Crazy Eddie example, you could speak to people in the room. If you're doing a 506C offering, you could generally solicit for the first time in our country's history. Bill, could you, excuse me, can you go over the underwriting, uh, the underwriting process of a, of a uh, fix and flip? I mean, how do, you, how do you underwrite a fix and flip? Well, I, I think I, I would like to do that. I've been flagged with probably four minutes left. So I will be back up here, and there'll be a panel of experts that will answer how they do the fix and flip underwriting. So we, we, will, cover, we will definitely cover it in today's seminar. I'm just not going to have time to do that right now. All right, general solicitation. What do you need to do to do a 506C offering? Old rule, when there was no general solicitation allowed, all you had to do is get an affidavit and a subscription agreement and that the borrower said that they were accredited investor. You're good. The new rule says you got to go further. The burden has shifted to the manager, you, if you start a fund, to really know that that guy's an investment, a, a, a uh, accredited investor. Why is that? because now they've opened the pool for you to speak to everybody in a room like this to get money from. So I gotta know as the manager that you're a credit investor. How do you do it? Two years of taxes, a net worth standard with supporting documentation, a written third party attestation. Lawyer, accountant, somebody in the know has to tell the manager 
You have to put it in the file that he's reviewed it, she's reviewed it, and you're a accredited investor. You don't have formal record-keeping requirements. This is a higher standard. If you're the manager and you're generally soliciting, this is what you need to do. Leonard talked about Reg A. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. This also changed under the Jobs Act. It just came into effect. You used to be able to raise $5 million. Now you can raise $50 million. You still have to comply with state law requirements. The biggest problem in our business is you have to be offered on a national securities exchange to a qualified purchaser. That, I believe, takes it out of the hard money space, the Reg A thing. My advice to everybody in this space, less regulation. You want less government regulation as possible. If you go on an exchange, you have more regulation. The private placement that I'm talking about, the 506 offering, means you're exempt from registration. You have complied with the safe harbor rules, and you could raise money without registering. It keeps the government away from you, which is what you want in this business. Couple quick examples of loan transactions. This one was a $850,000 loan. I told you I like doing gas stations. They're operating businesses. It ended up paying back with one month default. We gave our investors a 17.77% return. It was a great deal. Second one, this was the shopping center deal where the tenants weren't there. Empty. This is a great one. This was by President Clinton's office in Harlem. I was going out to do a loan. Great apartment. The borrower who had a contract for me said, let's go walk the property. I'm walking the property with him, and he starts telling me about the new fireplace he put in and the spiral staircase he put up to the roof and the new bathroom. And I'm taking notes on everything because I walk the properties I lend against. So I asked him a question. Let me understand something. You're the contract purchaser of this property? Yes, I am. How'd you do all this work here? He already owned it. He was already an owner of the property. He was trying to refinance with me. It's called a fraud, a lie. We didn't do the deal. Great real estate, complete liar. Loan request, Michigan. LTV, borrower claims, wanted $900,000 and a $1.5 million value. So we do an appraisal. We get something called estoppels. Do you know what estoppels are? Okay. You got to verify if the property, if the borrower's claiming that it has a certain rent roll, you got to go to the tenants and get pieces of paper signed by them because the odds are the tenants are not in cahoots with the landlord and going to lie to you about what's going on. Turned out, it, he said they had 80% occupancy of the building, 20% were on month to month and coming up. It was reversed. It had 20% occupancy and 80% were month to month. And one of them wrote in, we can't wait to get out of this place. <laughs> I mean, we're going through this. He actually wrote in, we can't wait to get out of this place. Zero value. I give zero value on month to month tenants. You ask underwriting, zero. Because you could leave on 30 days notice. There's nothing you could do. Some lenders give more. I don't. So that reduced the value substantially to 800000 That loan did not close. Oh, this is a good one. Franklin Lakes, New Jersey, beautiful home. Dentist went through a divorce. Okay, pretty bad divorce from what I hear. 
Present value of the home was $1.3 million. We were at a 53% LTV. We do a background search on everybody, full background search on everyone we borrow. 37, that's a number. Guess what that was? What? Yes. Not against the property, against the guy's business. He had 37 judgments and liens filed against him from the State Department of Treasury, from the IRS, from workers' comp. 37. So what this guy showed me is that he don't pay his bills. He fights. He doesn't care. He litigates. It was a great deal, but I wasn't going to see it without three years of litigation. We passed. Type of things you learn when you're doing underwriting. All right, we're going to uh, wrap it up. Quick summary. Trouble is opportunity, guys. People are coming to this end of the business because they can't get credit otherwise. Use it. It's an opportunity. It's a mature business. It's a good business. Skin in the game. Two sides of that. Your borrowers need skin in the game. And as, an invest, as a manager of your fund, you need to have some exposure to raise money from people. Don't trust but ver and verify. I'm changing that. If I knew that was true, I wouldn't have invested. That's the purpose of the offering circular. It discloses everything that we can so that statement's never said by one of your investors. Who gets a better deal at the closing? The borrower. Money for paper. He's giving you an IOU and you're giving him cash. Don't chase deals. We talked about the power of no. Talked about if this was a no document loan. Doesn't exist. Future improvements do not equal present value. Because I'm paying points, why do we need that? Go somewhere else. Come on, this is a hard money loan. I like the, uh, the complaining one. You know, come on. Okay, I'm just going to close. You're right. You're right. You said come on. Doesn't happen. This is a lawyer one. I need time and cure periods on a default. I love this. I put out a note. It says you're going to pay me the first on every month. And the borrower goes, I'm going to need you to tell me I have to pay you in writing on the first of every month. I go, I just did. I put it in the note. Some borrowers ask for another letter reminding you that's not a good way to start a relationship. It's in the note. It's written. If you don't, the next letter you're going to get is a default letter. Okay? I have thousands of dollars in this deal. Show me the money. We talked about that. Lenders don't take insurable risk. And this one's from Leonard. Experience is a cruel teacher. It gives you the exam first and the lesson later. That's it, guys. Thank you very much. So give a warm welcome to Mr. A.J. Poulin. Hello, you guys having a good time? I'm back. Okay, so um, I have a very interesting speech today, and it's not what you think it's going to be. You're going to laugh, you're going to cry, you're going to get angry, and you're going to say amen. All in one speech. Uh, first off, my name is AJ Poulin. Our company is Applied Business Software. We make very cool loan servicing and pool management software. Most of the private lenders in the U.S. use us. If you read the Scotsman's Guide, you know the Scotsman's Guide? Um, three of the top four lenders in the U.S. volume-wise use us. 
Jet Investor Landing bought our system 10 years ago. Doe Gadan bought our system 12 years ago when he was 72 years old. He's been using it ever since. Our oldest customer here, I think, is Anchor. Uh, where's Anchor? Anchor bought our system 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Been using it ever since. They have thousands and thousands of loans in the books. Last I heard, you guys were doing like 40, 50, 60 loans a month. 110 million last month on our software. So our customers uh, are very successful. We don't take full credit, but we help them get there. So enough about that. Okay, so hard money landing. What now, why then? Well, why then, what now? So I'm gonna show you an image that will scare you, make you angry, just to kind of get your attention, okay? So don't, don't cry and don't wither in your chair, ready? Uh, uh, don't look at the light. You guys know these two yoo-hoos? Yeah. Chris Dodd, Chris Dodd, Barney Frank, passed that stupid piece of legislation, and uh, Barney Frank soon went into retirement. Chris Dodd went to the private sector. So they passed that stupid law, and they said, see ya. Take it easy. Good luck dealing with that crap. So uh, you may remember when this was being debated in Congress, this bill, there's a lot of information on all the news networks and on the newspapers about why this needed to be passed. And you'll notice the focus of the conversations tended to be how lenders were the bad guys. They were evil. They were the reason why the economy tanked, right? The bubble, they blew it up. It wasn't the borrowers were buying homes they couldn't afford. It wasn't borrowers like doing, you know, stated income loans, right? It wasn't they couldn't even afford the monthly payment. No, no, no. It was the lenders. The lenders were the bad guy. And you probably felt like this. You probably felt like you were the target, that everything that was going wrong with the country was absolutely your fault. That's how it felt, right? It was intentional because you guys were turned into scapegoats. That's how that works. You guys were the problem. If you're lending money, you're the problem. You're the evil in the United States today, right? So I was fascinated by this whole concept. Like, why are the lenders the bad guys? You know, they're just making a living like anybody, like a welder or car repair guy. Why is it all about the lenders right now? So I was looking for the first time in recorded history that lenders were deemed scapegoats, right? That they were considered evil or whatever. So I went back a few years, and then I went back a few decades, and then I went back a few hundred years, and I ended up with the first thing I could find in recorded history that lenders were deemed scapegoats. And that's where I ended up. 350 BC, 2,500 years ago, was the first thing I could find in print, tablet, where lenders were deemed scapegoats. Here's what Aristotle had to say. He said, the most hated sort of money making and with the greatest reason is usury, which makes a gain out of money itself and not from the natural use of it. So two things there. The first thing is from the natural use of it. The natural use of money, in his eyes, was that money should be used to buy something, either a product or a service. So if you wanted to buy seed in the spring for the crops, you gave somebody money, they gave you seed. If you had broken shoes, you go to the cobbler, you give him money, he fixes your shoes, right? Goods or services. That was the intent of money in his eyes. Usury, you know what usury is today, predatory lending, right? Back then, usury was the term used for all lending because in their mind, all lending was predatory. All lending was usury. Shouldn't do it. 
It's bad. All right? He goes on. We're for all modes of money making. This is the most unnatural. Now, the funny thing about that statement is they were so darn polite back then. Even their insults were polite. They didn't have phrases like yo mama or, you know, pizza face, right? So they said things were unnatural. So other things at that time that were unnatural, having sex with a goat was unnatural, right? Marrying your sister, unnatural. Lending money, unnatural. You're in the same camp as these guys. Not very nice, right? 2,500 years ago. But it didn't end there. It continued. Plato said exactly the same thing. He had exactly the same opinion. Cato really kind of kicked it up a notch. Cato said, if you lend money, it's the equivalent of murder. So somebody kills somebody, and somebody lends somebody some seed crop or whatever. Same camp. Murder, lending, same thing. Cicero, yeah, he's, he really kind of got creative here. He said, if you lend money, you're going to burn in hell. Right? He said that. And then Dante really just, you know, he's just, you know, very creative. He said, yeah, you're going to burn in hell, but you're going to burn in hell with all the money you lent around your neck on the seventh rung of hell. Very detailed. Very strong opinions about this stuff, right? So that's the backstory. This went on through B.C., the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, 13th century, Renaissance, Reformation Ages. It went on and on and on and on throughout the history of time. But here's the rub. As they say, here's the deal, as Leonard always says. Societies that lent money did better than societies that did not. That is just a fact. Trade boomed. For example, when they're exploring new lands, somebody had to put up the capital to hire the crew, to get all the stuff, to get the boats, right? And they sent them on their way. And when they came back after pillaging foreign lands and taking all their gold and stuff and spices, they came back. The guy made a really nice return on his investment, right? So trade boomed. The people that worked on the ships that made it back alive, they got a lot of money in their pocket. They could maybe buy some land, set up a farm. So societies did better. Just a fact, citizens became wealthier. Whole industries were created around this. But the turning point, in my opinion, was 1545. 1545 is the first time a country on this planet had a set interest rate for lending. Does anybody know the country? Bueller? Anyone? England. Who was in charge of England at the time? King Henry VIII, I am. What was the set interest rate for all lending in England 500 years ago? 10%. How funny is that? 10%. That's what they're doing today. More or less, right? Depending on the deal. 500 years ago, 10%. Do you now realize you're in a stable profession? <laughs> <laughs> okay? So, but this battle kept going on between politicians, business people, and the church wasn't a big fan of lending either, although they did it in some places. But it wasn't in a boxing ring. It was in the court of public opinion. People trying to sway each other's opinions on whether you should or shouldn't be doing this. Public opinion, where is that? Newspapers, TV, movies. You guys remember It's a Wonderful Life? Who the heck were you rooting for in this movie? The evil Mr. Potter or Jimmy Stewart? Mr. Potter, you can take their homes. Right? Easy one. Mr. Potter, evil. Jimmy Stewart, great guy. It wasn't just that movie. 
lot of movies, a lot of books, a lot of articles. Remember the Shylock? Merchant of Venice? Karl Marx? Karl Marx, not a big fan of lending. Do you guys remember Occupy Wall Street? That was not that long ago. They were camping outside of banks and lending institutions saying, hang the bankers, jail the bankers. That was not that long ago, folks. Again, scapegoats. They're not the problem, but they were deemed the problem. So, when did it change, right? When did it become accepted? My opinion, 1774, our country is very new. A gentleman who signed these letters anonymously, sent them out to local papers, it's called Letters on Usury and Interest, wrote all these articles, had them all printed. He never signed them. Most scholars understand it was probably Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers, big on debt, big on lending. Here's one snippet from one, lent, from one article. The practice of lending money to interest is in this nation and under this constitution beneficial to all degrees. Therefore, it's beneficial to society. I say in this nation, which as long as it continues to be a commercial one, must be chiefly supported by interest. And interest is the soul of credit, and credit is the soul of commerce. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? People need to buy stuff. They don't always have the money. Seems simple now. At the time, somebody this important writing these articles swayed public opinion. He was helped by Mr. Adam Smith, who most people consider the father of American economics. And he said, if something can everywhere be made by the use of money, something ought everywhere to be paid for the use of money. These guys helped shape the foundation of our nation, which is a capitalistic society. You can thank them if you're doing what you're doing. They turned the corner for lending. And there will always be an access, there will always be a need for access to capital, and that is why you are all in the world's second oldest profession. And we're in Vegas, you can figure out the first one. Thank you very much. So, this is the number one question I get all day, every day. How did our average customer get started in private lending? That's how, by accident. <laughs> wasn't a master plan. They did not go to Harvard and say, I want to get a degree in private lending. It does not exist. They started lending their own money. Talked to a gentleman today, he's doing exactly that. A paper broker, none of these deals are getting closed, the criterion's too rigid, somebody needed a loan, he said, I'll tell you what, I have some money, I'm gonna lend it to you, I'm gonna pay a higher interest rate, but I'll get you that loan. They lent their own money, and then they lent Someone else their money. And then they kept doing that. And then they lent out all their money. And then they had some friends that wanted to return. And their family members like this whole 10% thing. Or both. Next thing you know, the A-paper stuff's over there. They're a private lender. So it may seem hard to believe. This screen represents, I don't know, 1 20th of our customer base. They all started lending their own money. That's how it works, folks. If you're a broker and you have some capital to lend, just start lending it. Follow John's advice about what deals you should and shouldn't do, what you're gonna disclose, do all those things, lend your own money. That's how it starts. 
Those guys also have something in common. They all service their loans. Why the heck would they service their loans? It's so glamorous. They're going to get their names in the paper, cover people, sexiest man alive. He's a great loan servicer. No, they do it for that. It's a point. Doesn't sound like much. Do the math. $20 million portfolio, you're charged a point. It's $200 grand a year. In California, you can almost live off that. Uh, you add a zero to the both sides if you're a really big portfolio. So there's, there's revenue all around, and Leonard talked uh, a lot about that. But the thing is that if you ain't making a spread, you ain't getting ahead. Line from one of my Texas customers. It wasn't you, somebody around there, though. If you're not making a spread, you're not getting ahead. Recurring revenue, that's what you want. And yeah, there's more, there's more. Opportunities. If you're calling your investors once a month, we just put money to your bank account. Oh, by the way, John, yeah, you know what? You're getting a payoff on Friday, 200 grand. And I'm so glad you happened to call in today. I've got a loan on my desk, 200 grand, great borrower, great deal. All my investors will want this, but I'll tell you what, since I talked to you first, you want to just roll off that payoff into this new loan? Perfect. I'll send you that paperwork. I just closed the loan. I closed the loan because I was managing the loans and managing the investors. That's why people do it. They get those opportunities that other people don't get. That's called building your business. It's also being a control freak. Our customers want to know what's going on, right? If the borrower's falling behind, you want to be proactive. You want to know about it. If somebody else is managing that for you, you find out after the fact, you do not want to get a call from an investor saying, where is my checks? Oh yeah, sorry, that thing's in foreclosure, sorry. That's not, that's not how you do it. You want to be in charge. If you're a broker only, with all due respect, you are like every other salesperson in America. At the beginning of every month, you get a big donut on the wall for the sales for the month, right? Let's say May 31st, you were the top dog. June 1st, level the playing field, right? And that's your life. The Swiss Alps, up and down and this and that. If you're a servicer, the idea is you're adding to the portfolio all the time. So if you do both, that's what it's supposed to look like. For our customers, that's what it looks like. You got four options for servicing, okay? Number one, you can outsource. Some people do it. If you have two or three loans, and that's gonna be about it, and Maybe not more than that, maybe a couple loans a year. Go for it, outsource. Let somebody else handle it. If it's your own money, you have less at stake. If it's, you're not dealing with somebody else's investors, somebody else's money, that gets a little tricky. If it's your own capital, you don't want to deal with it, fine. Outsource. Had an outsourcing company tell me once that in a perfect world, uh, every loan they were servicing would go to foreclosure. Because they make a little bit on the servicing, but they make a lot of money when they go to foreclosure. So he said, in a perfect world, all loans would go to foreclosure. I'm like, you don't want me to tell that to your customers, do you? Because I don't think they'd appreciate that. I didn't see that on your flyer. Yeah, we'll do the servicing for you. We really hope they go to foreclosure. <laughs> Told me that. Customer, too. I'm not going to say their name. Um, this is what most people do in the beginning. If I was starting a business and money was an issue, I would use Excel and QuickBooks. I would use Excel for the borrowers. Each have their own tab and this and principal interest fees, next pay date, things like that. I use Excel for the borrowers and I use QuickBooks to pay the investors. You already have Excel. Actually, I did the speech once. I said, Excel is free. And this ding dong came up to me after the speech. And he goes, you know, Excel isn't free. It's $98. I just checked on the Microsoft website. I'm like, who the hell doesn't have Excel? I'm like, you got nothing to do? Give me crap. Um, yeah. QuickBooks. QuickBooks isn't free, but most people have QuickBooks. So essentially, it's free. You probably have that stuff, which is cool. So you get 
half dozen loans in the books, do that. Only challenge there, keep in mind, is like if somebody's late, then you got to go to Microsoft Word and write a late notice or you owe your insurance bill this month or, you know, here's your monthly statement. So now you're doing that. And then if you want to know when to do that, then you can use Serum software. Say, you know, make sure you send him a letter. Then you go to Word, create a letter, and then you go to Excel and say, I sent him a letter, right? So it can get a little cumbersome. Most people call us when they have 20 loans, then they hear the price and then they buy it when they have 40. So, but 20 is when something happened. You know, 20 is when somebody dropped a prepay. I had a guy call me and he goes, hey, I'm buying your software today. I go, oh, well, you haven't returned my call in like nine years. He goes, yeah, my, uh, my assistant, when I was out of town, she, uh, she dropped the prepay on a loan and it was like 19 grand. He goes, uh, you're going to tell me now, AJ, that uh, if I had your software, that wouldn't have happened. I go, uh, just send me a check. And he did. He's very happy. Um, custom software. The pros and cons of custom software. The pros are non-existent. There's a lot of cons. Anybody here ever go custom with their software application back office? You're lucky. You only do it once. It's always the same story. Hey, I got a brother-in-law, his cousin's friend, went to school for websites. He's going to make me a site for, it's going to be three months, 200 bucks. And uh, I'm like, yeah, okay, yep, okay. And, uh, you know, and we just, we, we do our best and say, okay, here's what's going to happen. They go, no, 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 he's really smart. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that solves that. Um, so what happens is then we call him six months later. I go, hey, how's it going? And they always say the same thing. They go, we're getting there. Good progress. Coming along. And then six months after that, coming along, I'm getting there. Yep, looking good. So it's two to three years. And then after the two to three years, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then they tell us that they ended up spending like 10, 20, 30, 40 grand. Uh, and then that even if it worked, which it never does, but if it does, they're like, they go to the programmers and go, oh my God, it actually works. This is great. You know, where's the statements, the late notices, the bounce check notices, the investor returns, the IRR as the portfolio yields and all that stuff. They go, well, you never told me to make reports. You just told me to make the system. <laughs> the reports are extra. So that's usually how it goes. Don't recommend it. Um, software. Okay, full disclosure. So there are 60, to my knowledge, 60 loan servicing products in the marketplace. We're one of 60. So if you want to shop around, I'll give you the list. I actually made a list of everyone I know of. Call them all. Um, most private lenders have us. We don't really sell their banks or credit unions that often. We have customers like Pepperdine University and City of Miami and Baltimore Life Insurance, U.S. Bank. Those are exceptions. Our target customers, uh, private lenders. Um, here, here's my advice for buying software, whether it be loan servicing software and pool software or any other type of product like that. This is my advice to you. It's my gift. Take your time. Most people take their time when making a large purchasing decision what affects their business for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Don't rush into it. I know it's Vegas. You don't get married on your first date. Probably won't work out. Take your time. Don't just do one demo. Do multiple demos. Um, my ref, the referencing is great. I hear this all the time. Every other software company I know of, they say that they are our number one competitor. I'm like, well, how can we have 60 number one competitors out there? So uh, it's a great compliment. Um, here's the thing you do. If you're talking to somebody in Toronto, so um, let's say somebody says, I'm looking to buy this product, AJ, and they say they're the biggest whatever in Toronto and they're the big dogs and it's half the price and da da da. I just say, ask them, if they're the big dogs, ask them for 10 people running mortgage pools on that system in Toronto. And it trips up the salesperson every time. They always go, well, that's confidential. <laughs> it's like, well, how can you talk about all these customers you have? You can't, tell me, you can't name one. That means they don't have any. It's a salesperson trying to get the sale. Uh, 
even if they do provide references, let's say they, they say they're the big dogs and blah, blah, and they give you 20 references, right? These are the guys they send Christmas cards to, you know, all that stuff, right? So you take that, you take the 20 and you come on up, and you throw it away, and you say, I need 20 more. They don't have 20 more. That means they're small. That means that they lied to you, right? With anything, try that. You will never get calls from these salespeople again because they know that you caught them. Dodd-Frank compliant. Most people these days are doing rehab loans. Congratulations. Very few customers are doing owner-occupied. The people that are doing owner-occupied are killing it because nobody else is doing them. So Richard Temme, customer in LA, I think they do 40 owner-occupied loans a month. Yes, you make less. Yes, you get to dot your I's and cross your T's. However, they're doing them. You might not be doing it today, but I'm telling you, this stuff changes. Whatever you buy, make sure it does that. This is the big thing, what your investors see. So yeah, it's math and it's statements and compliance and all that stuff, boring. Investor management, it's giving investors the warm fuzzies. Yeah, he's making 10%, but let's say he's making 10% over there, he can make 10% anywhere. Or maybe it's 8% today, right? He can make 8% with anybody in this room. Then what's the difference? Why is he gonna invest with you versus anybody else? Because you give them really pretty statements. Investors like to count their money and they like charts and graphs and things like that, right? Makes them feel good. This is a warm blanket to an investor. Makes them feel safe. You want investors to feel safe. Same returns, but they feel safe. They're gonna invest with you, not the guys down the street with the spreadsheets. You wanna go online, check their balances. They love that stuff, right? Makes them feel safe. Ever since Bernie Madoff, right? People wanna know, they wanna count their money, let them count it 24 hours a day, they'll be happy. You really wanna make them happy, let them use their iPad app, right? They like this stuff. I'm telling you, it's a difference between growing your investor base and having the investors just kind of, yeah, now we're not gonna invest anymore. Yeah, the returns are okay, but they need a warm blanket. Give them a warm blanket. It's called dressing to impress. What? You say, say something funny. I know I like funny things. Oh, okay, fair enough. Give it to yourself. Uh, dress to impress, right? So that's what that's about. You see the guy that Leonard showed the image of with the flumpy hair and the wrinkled shirt or whatever, he was a customer of ours. He is a customer of ours. He's like, yeah, I'm having a hard time raising capital. It's like, well, you've got to be out of your mind. Um, right. So what's next? Mama's done here. So without talking about what's coming in the future with no crystal ball, let's talk about what people used to be doing. Seconds, owner-occupied, adjustables, ground-up construction. Remember all this stuff? I got customers now, they only do ground-up construction loans. I have customers now that only do seconds. I have customers now that are only doing owner rock. I know you're all doing rehab loans. That's fantastic. That's what's going on these days. I'm just telling you, planting a seed. Be ahead of the curve as far as other types of loans you offer. You guys are chameleons. You've always been chameleons. Right? You adapt to the marketplace. You always have, and you've done it for the past 2,500 years. Newest wave is crowdfunding. Crowdfunding. The definition is getting multiple funding sources to fund a project. In the hard money world, it's multiple funding sources to fund a loan. Guess what? It's still a hard money loan. It's a fractionalized deal. This is not new. It's got a new name on it. The crowd funders, they all service their loans. Not rocket science. So if everybody's servicing their loans, making money, doing well, you should service your loans too. So there. So if you want to talk about our software, we can show it to you live. I'm at the booth in the corner. Hope you enjoy my presentation. Give a warm welcome, Mr. Jeff Tesh, please. Hey, oh, hey, oh, hey.
much, Leonard. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, this is our fifth or sixth year running now with Pitbull. Sixth year running with Pitbull. And, um, you know, it's interesting. We came here looking to get knowledge in the beginning. You know, our company was formed back in 2010, and we were like a lot of other folks that are here today, which is small business people that wanted to understand on how to build a business. But something interesting has happened along the way. And I, I really, if there's one thing you take away today, just re remember this. It's the relationships that the Pitbull Conference fosters that will help you build your business. There is no small relationship that is born today. You don't know where it's going to take you. And I can tell you, we have friends all around this room that have become more like family over the years. So just meet as many people as you can and make the most out of this day. So away we go. Uh, about a year ago, Leonard came to me and said, Jeff, rehab is exploding. I want you to get up and give 20 minutes on the secret sauce on how to be a rehab lender. I said, okay. All right, Lenny, 20 minutes. You got it. So this is how it was really all born. We, we developed this presentation to take you the, through everything that we learned along the way in building RCN Capital, better known as Rehab Cash Now back in the day. So from the inception all the way through to today's exploding marketplace is where we're going to take you today. So the key points. We're going to start right from the beginning, planning your business, the company reach, loan programs, the all-important process. Everyone should have a process. Qualifying deals, supporting documents, underwriting, closing procedures, and establishing your reputation. All right, here we go. So you want to be a fix and flip lender. Well, there's no shortage of fix and flip lenders out there today. Back when we started the company in 2010, the residential marketplace was a mess. Foreclosures everywhere. Short sales everywhere. Valuations were next to impossible. But what we did see was an opportunity. Private money was the only answer to all of the investors and contractors that wanted to go out and acquire these assets. Private money was the answer. And that's really how we focused our original development from the beginning. In order to set your own business up for success, you need to think about what you're going to focus on. And that's what we're going to take you through today. So most folks start out local. That's how most folks start out in the rehab lending business. However, you do have a choice. You can come into the space as a broker, set yourself up as a fund, and be a national lender right out of the gate. But what this slide is going to do is, is going to kind of contrast what the two options are. So let's start on the local side. Most local lenders 
and there's a tremendous, no, tremendous number of local, hard money, private asset lenders that never go 100 miles beyond their base of operations. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're local, they know their, their marketplace, and that's great. But even when you're local, you want to hire an appraiser or have an in-house appraiser to get a value on that property. Now, if you're going to be doing disbursements, as many rehab lenders are, if you're local, you do them yourself. It's only 100 miles. You get in the car, you go out and meet your customer. You say, okay, what have you done so far? The reason I bring this up is it's very important that you perform the inspection. It's not okay to have your customer, Joe, email you a few pictures and say, hey, can I get my next draw? And there are lenders out there that do this. I would advise against it. Because what you're missing is what you don't see. If you're a local lender, you're going to have much more familiarity with your own marketplace. And that's what's really important when you're getting the business going. Because you really can't afford mistakes. Going back to what Leonard was talking about, as well as John, you can't afford to miss payments to your investors. So you have to be on your game from the get-go. Now let's flip to the other side. Let's say you want to be a national lender. So you're going to originate loans across the country. Okay, you can start out with that platform. Nothing wrong with that. Be aware of state licensing requirements. John touched on this multiple times. Don't just say, ah, well, I'll make one loan. It's not a big deal if I need a license. That's a sure path to destruction because that one loan won't pay you back, and then next thing you know, they're calling the banking commissioner. Just get the license. Partner with a strong appraisal network. Now, even when we were a local lender at RCN, we really weren't going that far away from our home base. I always used an AMC. You know, RCN Capital, our relationship with Appraisal Nation goes back five years now. They're, they're who we've chosen to partner with, mainly because they listened to what the hard money lender needed. We tried other AMCs in the beginning, and they all said, well, you know, you've got your residential, FHA, BIF, C, what? what? I don't need any of those forms. I need to know what the value of the property is today. I need to know what the value of the property is when my customer fixes it, and that's how I determine my underwriting. That's why we partnered with Appraisal Nation. Now, inspections, once you go out beyond your 100-mile area, you're going to need to partner with an inspection company. We use a company out of California called CFSI. They guarantee us an inspection from ordering in 48 hours. Once again, the name of that company is CFSI Inspections. They're out of Southern California. We vetted a few, but what we found was this particular inspection company had hard money lending experience. They understood what the lender needed in the fix and flip space. The point of all this today is 
getting you folks to think about the different decisions you make when you're building your business. Because the groundwork you lay in the, in the beginning will allow you to scale. Everybody wants to scale, whether you're selling sandwiches or selling gasoline. Everybody wants to sell more. If you lay the foundation in the beginning, you'll be able to scale much quicker. And then as far as national goes, keep current on market trends. You know, John's slide today on the different geographic regions and the different interest rates was really on point. And he's right. RCN Capital can get 14% in Ohio. In California, I'm lucky to get 10. It's just the way it works. So make sure that you do your research and price your product appropriately. Okay, so let's talk about loan programs. I just touched on this. Establish your rates by lending area, whether you set up a national map or maybe even a local map. You know, we're out of Connecticut, so I can relate to the Northeast area most easily. Some areas in the city, I can only get 10%. But if I go up to Westchester County, I might be able to get 12. And it can be that geographic sensitive. So be very aware of that. Don't leave money on the table. And then set the terms for your rehab projects. And what I mean by this is, when the rehab budget comes in and you see the scope of work, and I'll get more into the different documents that you're going to need to collect, but when you see the scope of work of what your rehab customer is going to do, make sure that you allow enough time for them to be able to complete that rehab. LTV, well, that goes without saying. Make sure you know exactly what you're doing with your LTV. Don't be too aggressive just because somebody else is. And then the collateral property type. When you're setting up the basis of your business, you don't have to lend on all types of properties in the, in the fix and flip space. You could just do single families, or you could just do one to fours. At RCN Capital, that's all we did for years was one to fours. But as we got bigger, more requests came in for small apartment buildings, and we branched out into that. But it's important that you set your criteria with reasonable expecta expectations from the beginning. Okay, important slide. Process. Even if it's just yourself, or just yourself and a couple of employees, and you've been doing things the same way for a long time, but you want to get bigger, maybe you've started a fund, Maybe you've acquired a capital line from one of the capital partners that are here today. The first thing they're going to ask you is, what is your process? And it should be documented. And even more important than it being documented, you should actually follow it. You shouldn't be making uh, various exceptions just because. Follow your process. So this is the way we do it at RCN. It's been pretty successful for us. So we start with pre-qualification. And what that means is your phone will ring all day and it will be people running scenarios by you. And all day long, it'll either be you or one of your team members saying no. Because all day long, people call us up with loans that we are never going to do. Can I see a, a show of hands on people 
that spend the majority of their day saying no to silly ideas. Yeah, quite a few. And that's just the nature of the business. People have dreams and they have all these sort of ideas. It's just never going to happen. So prequal. At RCN, once we got a little bit bigger, it was very important that I established a permanent person to weed through the nonsense. So when you're thinking about scaling, that's one of the quickest ways that you can save time and money is to put somebody on the intake role who just gets rid of the nonsense. That way your loan officers that are actually negotiating the deals aren't dealing with the nonsense. Come up with an application. Doesn't have to be too detailed, but you should have an application with all the pertinent data. You can go to rcncapital.com. Our application's right on there. You can steal it, it's fine. All the pertinent information that you need to be able to underwrite the loan. And then the various documentation that you're gonna need. You're gonna wanna collect that. And oh, very important, have a signature line on the bottom of your application and have them sign it. Because as John pointed out multiple times, all the customers lie, and that couldn't be a more true statement. So when they lie and you go to foreclose on them, you have an application with their signature. And you say, your honor, he told me this, this, and this, and he signed it. That's even, it's the most damning thing that you can do. Underwriting and due diligence. So once you have all your, your pertinent documents collected, and we'll go into some more of what we collect at RCN, you want to underwrite them. And even if it's just yourself, you should have a formal process of weeding through the documents. You want to look at the value. You want to look at the appraisal. You want to look at uh, the rehab budget and whether or not with that amount of money, the borrower is going to be able to sell the property for a profit. If your borrower is not going to be able to sell the property for a profit, don't do the loan. And you may get properties where the borrower is putting down a ton of cash and it's a 50 LTV and he's not going to make any money. And you say, well, hey, I'm getting paid. Don't do the loan. You'll do the borrower a favor and you'll do yourself a favor when the borrower comes to you and says, I didn't make any money. Can you help me out? Because it happens all the time. And then loan confirmation closing checklist. We use an outside attorney, and that's where they get involved. They'll go through a closing checklist of all the appropriate documents. And then finally, closing and post-closing. So you're going to get those documents back. You're going to secure them in a safe place. As many of you know, and those who you don't know, you need to save that note in a place where it will never be lost with a real signature. Very important. So how do you qualify those deals? So you've thought about how big a operation you're going to start with. You've thought about how you're going to get started, where and, and when. You've developed your process. And now it's time to start qualifying deals. First question, and the most important question for any asset-based lender is, how are you going to pay me back? As John stated in his excellent presentation, the borrower does always get the better deal. Exit strategy is everything in private lending. And it's really important that you get a, a handle on this from the beginning. Because what you don't want the borrowers to do is saying, well, 
I'm planning on holding this property for rental income, uh, but if that doesn't work out, I'm going to sell it. Well, what are you doing? What are we doing here? Are you holding it for rental income? Are you going to go through the process of getting a takeout with a conventional lender when you have a 535 credit score? Or are you going to flip it? Because if you have a 535, you probably aren't going to get a loan. Doesn't mean a hard money lender doesn't want that as a fix and flip, but you certainly don't want the takeout to be with a conventional lender in that case. So exit strategy number one, details of subject property. You want to understand what the property is. Have the borrower tell you what, what it is that they're buying and how they're going to fix it. Skin in the game, this gets used all the time. You'll hear it multiple times across the day. At RCN, 20% down. We'll fund the full rehab, but we want your money. We will cross-collateralize if you don't have cash and you're equity rich, but get the skin in the game. And there are lenders out there today who have gotten away from that, and it's going to be unfortunate when it unwinds. Use of proceeds. Make sure they explain to you what those use of proceeds are for. Mainly, a pro forma of exactly how they're going to fix the property. Appraisal Nation and RCN Capital developed a very, very detailed rehab list with blank spaces for everything that you can imagine. What we wanted to do was we wanted to formalize it in a document that we could email to every borrower and say, here you go. Now you might say to yourself, well, what did you need the appraisal company for to develop that? Why didn't you just develop it yourself? The reason we developed it in conjunction with Appraisal Nation was we take that document, it comes back to us, and then when we order the appraisal, that document goes off to the appraiser. The appraiser now knows exactly what the borrower is going to do to that property and can assess an accurate value of what the rehab property is going to be worth. Very, very important. Experience and background, we do at RCN Capital loan to first-time flippers, but the more experience, the better. Market saturation levels. It's pretty hotter across the country right now. I mean, most markets are going pretty good. There are some areas that do have over 90 days uh, in the marketplace on the MLS. Just keep an eye out for that. And then cash reserves. I mentioned the guy with the 535 credit score. Well, if it's a fix and flip and he's putting 50% down and he's got all the money for the rehab, cash cures all sins. You don't know where he got the money, most likely from flipping. It's helpful if you could ascertain where he got the money. A lot of lenders don't. What we do at RCN is we require a letter of explanation for whatever that's worth. Who knows really where the money comes from? But at the end of the day, if you can lock up that cash in the deal, cash reserves are critical. Okay, supporting documents. So here are some of the documents required at RCN. We get a personal financial statement. So yes, they fill out an application and sign it. Then we send them a very simple personal financial statement. It just says, what do you own and what do you owe? What's your net worth? Tax transcripts. We take things to another level at RCN with the tax transcripts. 
We require a 4506T form. It's a one-pager. They fill it out and sign it. We send it off to the IRS. They send it back, and they tell us that they filled, uh, filled out their tax returns. It'll also tell us the bullet points on what they uh, claim they made in the past. Very helpful to weed out fraud. That's a 4506T form. Subject property appraisal, we've discussed that. Background and credit report. Now, listen, there's hard money lenders out there that don't run background and credit reports. That's at their own peril. I advise everyone to run a background and credit report. You don't need to set a minimum FICO. We don't. We have no minimum FICO. But what I want to know is, is the borrower paying their bills today? And if they didn't pay their Macy's bill last month, not somebody you want to lend to. Very important. Oh, and background? You'd be surprised what comes up on people's backgrounds. Proof of funds. So we require three months of bank statements. Just want to make sure they have the money. Once again, large deposits. We require a letter of explanation just so that they put it out there where the money came from. Pro forma, very important. Needs to be detailed. Number one, so that you know exactly what they're doing. And number two, so that your valuation model will help you be able to figure out whether they're not going to make money or not. Because if they're putting too much money into the house and they're not going to make money, you need an appraiser to be able to tell you that. Articles of incorporation. John mentioned this on several fronts. We only lend to corporations, LLCs. Don't make the exception. It's not worth it. Cost them nothing to set up an LLC. There's no reason they can't do it. So, underwriting. The, the all-important due diligence. This is your, and once again, even if you're just a single lender shop, and it's you and, you, you and all by yourself, it's important to have an underwriting process. You want to make sure that the borrower and the lender are on the same page and that the deal makes sense. You want to make sure the borrower is making money. Typically at RCN, we like to see at least a 15% profit. In California, it's less. <laughs> but across the U.S., we like to see 15%. If they're not making 15%, you need to have a heart-to-heart -heart with the borrower. Say, this property may not be for you. Or the borrower goes back to the seller and says, I'm not going to make any money on this project. You need to reduce your sale price. And you'd be amazed at the loyalty you will have from that customer when you tell the customer you need to go back to your seller and reduce the sale price, that customer of yours will be indebted to you because what's going to happen is they're going to go back to the seller and more often than not, the seller is going to reduce that price and you just saved your borrower thousands for doing absolutely nothing except doing the right thing. That's your customer for life. Perform an in-depth review of the documents. Just make sure they're valid. You know, if, if you're going to collect tax returns, match them up to the 4506T, make sure everything is above board, and then stick to those guidelines. If something isn't right, doesn't smell right, doesn't seem right, pass on the deal. There's plenty more. Okay, so now we've made our way all the way to closing. 
Engage the best legal counsel to ensure smooth closings. Now, as lenders get bigger, this is a function that they will bring in-house at some point. In-house attorneys and do the closings in-house, which is fine. But the small lender, for purposes of our discussion today, should use a counsel to represent you. Whatever fee you negotiate with that counsel, make sure they know what they're doing. And make sure that they're a hard money closer. Not the family friend that's been doing residential closing for years, comes to the summer barbecues. He's a nice guy, but not your hard money closer. Find somebody that is a commercial, commercial. Remember, it's residential properties, but these are commercial loans. You want an expert in that area. Hornick's okay, but I'm sure there's better. <laughs> and uh, John mentioned title insurance. Listen, the customer expects to pay for it. Just get the title insurance. At RCN, we have many claims, and the claims are silly ones, like a lien doesn't get released, or somebody didn't do something that they were supposed to do, but we're covered. Always use title insurance. Judicial versus non-judicial states. You know, there's a lot of different component to this. In the judicial states, we always have an attorney representing us at the closing table. In addition, John mentioned the all-important opinion letter. It's really important in judicial states because it's another document that you can bring to the foreclosure. So let me give you an example. The scenario works something like this. Your borrower, for whatever reason, has decided not to pay you. You're in a judicial state, which means they've got all sorts of time and the law on their side to be able to not pay you. And I'm not talking about months, folks. It can be years in judicial states. It sucks. It sucks bad. So, at RCN, what we did is, it doesn't make sense to go through the cost of an opinion letter for smaller loans. But even on the single-family fix-and-flip, on loans over $250,000 in the judicial states, we require the borrower to go hire somebody, usually an attorney, but sometimes title companies will do it, and write an opinion letter with their malpractice insurance attached saying that everything we're doing today is legal. So that's one less defense that your customer will have against you when it comes time to foreclose. You'll go into court and they'll say, none of these documents are legal. This is a residential house. I moved in right after I... No, 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 no. I have an opinion letter right here, Your Honor, from such and such stating that all of these documents are valid. So now you're closed. Congratulations. You've made a loan. Hopefully, they're going to pay you back. You're building your business. Reputation is everything. And once again, in small business, it really doesn't make a difference what you're selling. Doesn't make a difference if you're selling sandwiches on Main Street or mortgages. Your reputation is everything. So let's talk about some of the pitfalls in the private asset-based lending world that happens. Avoid junk fees. At RCN, 
especially back in the day. There's not as many lenders doing it today, but junk fees were just rampant, you know, back in 2011, 12, 13, you know. And I can't, you can destroy your business in a heartbeat by saying, okay, we're ready to underwrite your loan, Mr. Jones. Uh, can you please send us the non-refundable $1,999 fee that we'll credit to you uh, once we close. Unfortunately, those lenders never close. And you will destroy your business by charging those sort of outrageous fees for doing nothing more than reviewing a deal. We talked about no with Mr. Hornick. That's all we do. And we say no all day long. No funds, no commitment. Your borrower has to prove that they have the money. So what you don't want to do is issue a commitment that you're, and then not have the due diligence to back it up. And what I mean by that is if your borrower doesn't have money and you issued a commitment and then they never have the money, you're really the bad guy because you didn't, you didn't check. Give realistic time frames. Don't tell the borrower you're going to close in five days if there's no way you're going to close in five days. Be very specific about the timelines. Now, all sorts of things happen, right? There's clouds on title, things don't work out. But be honest and upfront. If you tell your borrower something, try and follow through. And then walk them through the process. Tell them, we're ordering an appraisal on this day, we're expecting it back on this day, we're ordering title on this day, we're expecting it back on this day, and then we're gonna close. They will appreciate that candor. And you'll have a customer over and over and over and over again. So, a little bit about RCN, uh, and then we'll wrap it up, and if there's any questions, I don't know if, it looks like I might have a minute for questions. National Direct Private Lender, we were founded back in 2010. As Leonard pointed out, we're a leader in the fix and flip space. Over 1,600 transactions uh, and growing. We have a current portfolio over 120 million. We keep all our own loans at RCN. We don't sell them off. We love to service our own loans. We feel it's much better communication with the borrower. We have a tremendous amount of our own equity in the business, which makes us make really good loans. That's it. Any questions? Come see me at the booth. Thank you very much.